On this week's 51%, she's a professor, pilot, computer scientist, and author, and talks about how flying helped her face many fears. Anytime there's a moment where you enter terrified and you leave exhilarated, it is meaningful. And we'll hear about environmentally friendly feminine products. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. So I'm going into aviation, yeah, Mom. I'm going into aviation, yeah, Dad. Going into The daughter of a Chilean father and a Filipina mother, Cecilia Rodriguez-Aragon grew up as a timid child in a small Midwestern town during the 1960s. Targeted by school bullies and dismissed by many of her teachers, she worried that people would find out the truth, that she was an INTF, incompetent nerd, terrified failure. This feeling stayed with her well into her 20s. Yet in the span of just six years, Aragon became the first Latina pilot to secure a place on the United States Unlimited Aerobatic Team and earn the right to represent her country at the Olympics of Aviation, the World Aerobatic Championships. Dr. Cecilia Aragon is now a professor of human-centered design and engineering at the University of Washington. In her new book, Flying Free, My Victory Over Fear to Become the First Latina Pilot on the U.S. Aerobatic Team, she chronicles her story of breaking free from expectations and rising above her own limits by combining math and logic with her passion for flying. Aragon spoke with 51%'s Elizabeth Hill about her transformation. So I was leading... A very narrow life. I was being a good student and doing what was expected of me, but whenever anything came up that I felt was scary or that I didn't feel competent to do, and there were a lot of things of that, I would say no. I was afraid to get in an elevator. I would rather climb nine flights of stairs than use the elevator. These phobias were restricting my life in so many ways. And I really realized that this couldn't go on, but I didn't really know what to do about it. So what steps did you take to overcome that fear? One day I was at work and a colleague of mine asked me, would you like to go for a ride in a small airplane? And my first thought was, oh no, <laughs> that's way too dangerous. I don't want to die. I have a long life ahead of me, hopefully. But then I thought, you know, what's the value of a life where it's so limited, where I don't get to do any of the things I really dream of doing? At that point, I had given up my big dream, which was going to school to get a PhD so I could become a professor, like my dad. <laughs> and I felt like I was just marking time. And when my friend said this, I stopped for a second. I was going to say no. And then I told myself, if I don't say yes to this, I may never get this chance again. So I agreed. There was this six-year period where you just, you completely reinvented yourself and took control of your fear. And you talk about how math and logic can be applied to everyday life to overcome fear and reach your fullest potential. Can you talk about that further? Yes. So first of all, what you need to know is I'm a daughter of immigrants. My parents both spoke with thick accents. And when I was growing up, my teachers often put me in the slow reading group or assumed that I wasn't going to be good at anything because I 
you know, was Hispanic, and obviously I would have bad language skills and I would not be very smart, according to them. I mean, it wasn't that they were bad people or that they were overtly racist, but the system had convinced them that this is what a typical Hispanic daughter of immigrants was like. So, and as a child, of course, I didn't know any of this. What I discovered is that the beauty of math is that if you get an answer right, no one can take it away from you. When I wrote an essay that used a good vocabulary, I had a teacher accuse me of plagiarism because someone like me couldn't possibly know all those advanced vocabulary words. But with math, when I got 100% on a test, nobody could take that away from me. And for me, that became a source of strength and joy. And then I discovered, on top of it all, that I could use some of the techniques in math to help me overcome these terrible fears which perhaps had been instilled in me from all this consistent negative messaging from teachers and classmates that told me I was incompetent. And so what I did when I started to take action is I used a technique called mathematical induction that's like the domino effect. If you push one domino, then you know the next one will fall. And it's the same method that you can use in mathematical induction. And so I used that for my fears. I told myself that each day I would do something that was just a little bit scary. And I knew that if I did it today, that I could do it again tomorrow. It didn't have to be a big step, just one domino falling over. But those, all those tiny little steps in sequence add up to a great big distance. And this attitude got you from a novice pilot to the U.S. aerobatic team. <laughs> yes. Can you introduce our listeners to what the U.S. aerobatic team is? So the United States Unlimited Aerobatic Team is a group of 10 pilots that are selected at the national championships every two years, and the national championships in the U.S., that is. And... Um, it's very competitive to get on the team, extremely competitive. Just it's, it's kind of an Olympic, like an Olympic team, but for aviation. Aviation is a powered sport, so it's not officially an Olympic sport, but people in powered sports have these equivalents, and the U.S. aerobatic team is one of those. It's kind of like Olympic figure skating. Each of us has a sequence of maneuvers that we fly one by one, and then judges on the ground score us from zero to 10 on each maneuver. And then all the scores are added together and averaged. And you compete at a global level? Yes. The, the World Aerobatic Championships is held in different countries all over the world. There are typically, oh, maybe 30 countries participating. And you were the first Latin American woman to be on the team. That's correct. I earned a spot on the team in the early 90s, and I was the first Latina to actually make that spot. And I will tell you that I did not believe I could do it when I started out. Certainly nobody I knew who knew me as a shy and fearful daughter of immigrants 
during my childhood would have said that I could do something so scary and that I could do something so difficult and something where the, where the odds were so great against me. And how long were you on the team? Four years. Did you also own your own flight school at that time, or was that something that you decided to do after you left the team? I was working two jobs to support my my flying habit. It's it's um it's very expensive to be on the team. I have to say, I had the privilege of having a job programming that enabled me to have a middle class lifestyle. And when I got my programming job, I was making twenty four thousand dollars a year, which was a huge amount of money. But it wasn't enough because many of the people on the team were actually quite wealthy and they had airplanes that cost $200,000 or more. And I simply could not afford that with my salary. So one of the ideas I had was taking on a second job that was aviation related. And that way I could bring in more money and it would be also lined up more with my dream of flying aerobatics and competing internationally. So I started a business with $200. And you still fly? I do still fly, although, although I have taken a break recently because of the pandemic. I hope to get back into it again soon. But I do not fly competitive aerobatics now. I teach people how to fly aerobatics, and I just fly for fun. So it's a hobby now rather than a profession. I wanted to go back to what you did after you established your flight school and you were on the U.S. aerobatics team. You went back and you got your Ph.D. Yes, I did. <laughs> that, and that was, that was quite a journey. When, so before I learned to fly, I was in a Ph.D. program at Cal Berkeley in computer science. I was able to do the work, the intellectual work, but I got a lot of pushback from, from some professors. Some were very supportive, but there was one professor who told me point blank, women don't have the intellectual capacity for computer science. And you can imagine what impact that had on a timid and fearful young woman who, you know, in her early 20s. I started questioning myself. I started saying, could he be right? You know, and I told myself, no, he can't be right. But I still, you know, you can't help believing it when somebody says that to you. Mm. And it's, you know, this is known as imposter syndrome. It's much more common in women and people of color. And anybody really who's been told by, by a screwed up system that they're not good enough. And so I dropped out of the PhD program, even though... I did have some good results and some good publications that could have given me a really excellent PhD, but I didn't believe in myself. And that's the terrible power of fear and lack of self-confidence. So I started working, and that's when my friend, my colleague, told me about flying and got me started on taking lessons. And what I found, the wonderful thing about taking lessons and becoming a pilot myself is I was able to use these techniques of mathematical induction because every day I was scared to go out to the airport to take my, 
to take my lesson. I would drive up to the airport and I would see the, a plane coming in for a landing right over me and my heart would clench with fear and I would say, oh, maybe my instructor will be sick today no. or maybe the plane will have a mechanical problem and I won't have to fly. But I kept on doing it because the joy of flying was greater than the fear. And that's, I think, a really important thing is that anytime there's a moment where you enter terrified and you leave exhilarated, it is meaningful because that is probably telling you something about what you can reach for. Um, fear may just be that screwed up system telling you you're doing something that you're not supposed to do as a woman or as a person of color. And you know what? What we all need to do now is to defy our fears, to defy that screwed up system and reach out to become more than what, than what we are now. And I think there, I, I run into so many people who say, I love doing X, but I'm scared of doing it. And, or, yeah. but, or, you know, or they have some, I don't have enough money, which is a real problem, let me tell you. Um, the point is that if you try to do something that you are scared of, just do a little bit of it every day, just a small amount, and you might be surprised of how wonderful your life can turn out. You never know what might happen if, if, if you do these things. I mean, this is one of the reasons now why I work a lot with young girls in STEM, science, mm -hmm. technology, engineering, and math, because I've found there's no substitute for being a girl or a woman comfortable with math, facing a group of people who think little of you, and then you silence the room with your love of numbers. Math is really kind of a magic trick, and it can help you. But it doesn't have to be math. For I mean, I've seen people, for them, there's one thing they're really good at. It might be dance. It might be some other form of art. It might be public speaking, which is not my forte. Um, whatever it is that's really good for you, use that to become good at other things and keep telling yourself that living life too safely can be dangerous for your spirit. So was going back to school, was that just your next step in facing your fears? Yeah, that was, a, that was another big step. So I, I, I had addressed the challenge of being on the U.S. aerobatic team, and, and I learned what to do, and I, and I raised money because I didn't have money, enough money to compete. And then after I, I won a medal, as a, as a member of the U.S. aerobatic team, I decided to retire and focus on my dream of becoming a professor. And so the, the next step was to get back into a, a Ph.D. program. And I had already finished about five years of training at Berkeley. And so getting back in was not so easy. But thanks to some dedication and perseverance and finding a female professor who actually said, you sound like you've done great work. I would love to take you on as my PhD student. Mm -hmm. I was able to get back into the program and then I worked really hard and I finished in a year and a half. That's awesome. 
Yes, thank you. <laughs> so I have to ask, you are obviously a role model for many, but who inspires you today? So Kamala Harris, our vice president-elect, inspires me tremendously, and particularly because of some of the commonalities in her life and my own. She is also the daughter of immigrants. Her and her parents also met in Berkeley, her father from Jamaica and her mother from India. And it is really exciting to see mixed race people be in positions of authority just so I can see their face up there on stage. And I really think that having people, having women of color in visible positions will really make our country better because it will inspire all the young people who have been discouraged. It will encourage them to push themselves to become better and to try to reach over these obstacles that have been put in their way. And, you know, we need bright people to discover, to discover the, the next cures for cancer. We need everybody on board, not just, you know, a fraction of the population. And so it is so exciting to see and to hope that people of color are becoming more visible and women are becoming more visible. What is one piece of advice that you could give to a little girl, a little girl of color, about facing their fears and standing up in the face of adversity? All right. So first of all, I'm going to say that everybody has something that can help them achieve anything. Many young people of color, particularly today, are really suffering. You know, I was really fortunate that I had a dad who believed in me, and that's not true for everyone. Some kids don't have dads. Some kids have to worry about walking outside in the street that they might, they might get shot if they go if, you know, if they make the wrong gestures or, or have skin the wrong color. So what I real, the message I really wanted to say in my book, why I wrote it, is that it is more important than ever today for this message to, to reach young girls and women and anyone really who's dreamed of doing something but has stopped themselves because of fear or insecurity or lack of confidence. And that might be young women who want to be scientists but allow themselves to be convinced they're not good in math. Anyone who's been told either overtly or subliminally that they're inferior. I think there are so many people who have been told by a screwed up system that they're not good enough. I want people to read this book and feel activated to get together with others and to change themselves and to change the world around them to fight back against the fears and to do it with others to change the, the screwed up system. This is why I wrote the book. This is why it means so much to me. I've been fortunate to have many mentors in my life. I believe the mentorship comes not from one single person, but from a group of people. It can come from a community. So for example, 
the aviation community. I received tremendous support from many people in that community, and they were my mentors. Obviously, as I said before, my father was my first mentor because he always believed in me as a child. And, and when my teachers and my classmates put me down, my father still believed in me. But it could have been one teacher who did that. So for example, when I went to Berkeley, um, we had a guest speaker, Mildred Dresselhaus, who is a famous physicist from MIT. And there was just one talk where she looked at, she spoke to our women's group at Berkeley, the PhD students in, in electrical engineering and computer science. And she told us, you are wonderful. I don't think women like you are told this often enough, but you are wonderful and brilliant. And don't let anyone tell you that's not true. And just that one talk, that she gave. I never forgot it. I think particularly for anyone who has been told they're not good enough, they need to hear a counteracting view. There are plenty of people who get told nothing but good things all their lives. There are plenty of people who have that privilege. But for those of us who don't, yeah. what is so important for every, for everybody, sometimes people will ask me, what can I do to help? And I say, you don't have to start a foundation or do something big. What you need to do as an adult in this world is find one young person. It can find one person who is suffering, who is struggling, and give them hope. That is really activism that can start by just giving hope to one person. You don't have to do a big thing. But I, I, I really think that if everybody I talk to goes out and says, I will be a mentor, for somebody, for somebody else. Like my professor at UC Berkeley, Marty Hurst, did that for me. Like my dad did it for me. Like Mildred Dresselhaus did it. All these people, all these voices can counteract the professor that said that I wasn't good enough, that I could never do computer science. Then the, the teacher I had in junior high who said, you must have plagiarized this. Or the other teacher who said, why are you working so hard in math? You should be getting a boyfriend. <laughs> All those negative voices, the, the kids in my school who bullied and assaulted me and called me racial epithets, those voices can be silenced by positive voices of mentorship. So thank you so much for asking me this, and thank you for having me on this show. That was Dr. Cecilia Aragon speaking with 51% Elizabeth Hill. Aragon is a professor of human-centered design and engineering at the University of Washington and the author of Flying Free, My Victory Over Fear to Become the First Latina Pilot on the U.S. Aerobatic Team. It is published by Blackstone Publishing. And now we tune into Possibly, which looks at the science behind proposed environmental solutions, taking on massive problems like the future of the planet, and breaking them down into smaller Q&As. Here's Possibly host Megan Hall. If you flip through magazines or social media today, you might come across advertisements for environmentally friendly feminine hygiene products. We wondered if they were worth the investment. We had Fatima Hussein and Dana Altuami from our Possibly team look into this. 
Welcome, Fatima and Dana. Hi, Megan. Hello. So of all of the choices I make and the things that I use, is it really worth worrying whether my tampons are environmentally friendly? So let's put this into perspective. If you get your period every month, you'll have nearly 500 periods in your lifetime. Each period lasts about four to seven days at a time, which means you use a lot of menstrual products. We're talking around 10,000 pads or tampons over the course of your life. And then they all end up in the trash. Or if you flush them down the toilet, which you should never, never do, they can end up in our oceans. But how bad are these products compared to all the other stuff we throw out? It actually depends on the product and how it's packaged. But in general, the more plastic a pad or tampon uses, the more waste it creates. That's because their plastics don't break down or decompose. In a one-day beach cleanup organized by the Ocean Conservancy, volunteers in the U.S. picked up more than 12,500 tampons and applicators. How does that compare to other waste found in the ocean? It is the number one type of medical or personal hygiene product found on our beaches, ahead of condoms, diapers, and syringes. So what should I do instead? Try buying something that you can reuse, like cloth pads or menstrual underwear. Reuse? What do I do when I'm done with them? Just throw them in the laundry. They're typically made out of a mix of synthetic and natural fibers, so they can last a long time. Or you could invest in a menstrual cup. What's that? A menstrual cup is usually made of medical-grade silicon or latex. It's designed to catch your period, so you don't need to use pads or tampons. You can use one of these cups for up to 12 hours at a time, and they can last for as long as 10 years. But how much do all of these things cost? Reusable products are more expensive. Menstrual cups cost around $30 to $50, and period underwear can be more than $20 a pair. But a box of tampons costs about $7, so if you use one box a month, you'll pay off a menstrual cup in about half a year. What if I'm not ready to make the switch to cloth products or a menstrual cup? Are there other things I can do to lower the amount of waste I create with my period? Absolutely. The key here is just switching away from all that packaging and plastic. So try buying tampons without applicators or period products that are made of natural fibers instead of synthetic material, which takes much longer to break down. Great. Thanks for looking into this, Fatima and Dana. And thanks to Isha Chawla for her help on today's episode. For more information about recycling, energy use, or making any other choice that affects the planet, you may go to thepublicsradio.org slash possibly. Possibly is a co-production of the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society and the Publix Radio in Providence, Rhode Island. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1638.